Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts Tom Major and Ben Marshall. And joining us today, we've got a special guest host, and that is the herpetologist and author Scott Iper. So, welcome to the podcast, Scott. Welcome. Thanks very much, guys. Um, excited to, to get underway. Yeah, man. So, um, in this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about some interesting arboreal Australian snakes. And uh, yeah, classically, we've got a new species of the bi week. But I thought before we sort of get into the meat and potatoes, as it were, we could just have a chill and a little chat and, uh, yeah, kind of pick your brain because you've recently published a book. Yes. Uh, among other things, I, I wrote a book with my wife, Ty, um, on a, the snakes of Australia. So it's a it's a, a guide. It's not a field guide. There's a couple of things I would have liked to have done it if I, if I was going to turn it into a field guide. But um it's a, a naturalist guide to the snakes of Australia. It covers every species and subspecies of snake in Australia. Um, but in true taxonomic fashion, um, we've had a new species of blind snake described since the books come out and an additional species <laughs> of death adder has turned up on one of the Torres Strait Islands and uh, we had a, a species of sea snake uh, yeah. described by James Nankerville. Um I knew I knew about the sea snake before the book came out, and I tried to get a um, uh, tried to get photos of that axon in the book and put it in as a Western population, as to not sort of let the cat out of the bag too much, um, and still have a photo of the the snake in there. But I picked the northern Western version as opposed to the southern Western one, so um, that's all right. Second edition, we'll, we'll fix it up in the second edition. And we'll, <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll get it in there at some point in time. So, yeah, I did I did actually look in your book because um, we did that Emidocephalus species as our species of the bi week. And uh, yeah, I was wondering if it would feature, but yeah, it's just just missed it basically, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Or the animal that's in there is from, um, uh, I don't think, it's from one of the reefs off the Timor Sea. So, in that paper, they discussed that the, the Timor Sea animals might be different to the Eastern Australian animals, um, but there's not enough to, to separate them at this stage. Um, these ones that they described were from the over-the-sea grass beds on, in coastal WA, so uh, close but but not, not close enough, so to speak, but that's all right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's the thing with the nature of uh, nomenclature and taxonomy. There's always going to be changes happening. So um, it's just a matter of trying to convince the publishers that we need to do another edition sooner rather than later. Yeah, well, all these new snakes, ammunition for that. So that's good. Yeah, I think it's been 200 new reptile species this year so far or something ludicrous. Wow. Something that, I, yeah, reptile database, the, the pace of change on that thing is outrageous. Like, it's, it's a losing battle if you're trying to get everything detailed, you know, as it happens. But holy smokes. Yeah. I don't think there's any shame in not keeping up. Well, the scary part is, I mean, we're, um, Ty, Ty and myself are actually working on a, another book right now. And in the, we've been working on that now for about eight months. And in that eight months, we've had to redo three species accounts because the taxonomy in those groups has changed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of change in snakes, but in lizards, there's so much more. And realistically, I mean, you hear through the grapevine about other species that are being described. 
and there's so much more that's just within Australia that's yet to be described. I hate to think what it's like in, say, the Western Ghats or in parts of South and Central yep. America that, that people don't really get to, um, mm. and also places where you've got um, socioeconomic issues as well, whether it be war zones, unstable governments, all that sort of stuff as well, and just difficulty in getting into those places. So I'm sure there's going to be a hell of a lot more stuff out there to be described. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm sure there's yeah. lots and lots yeah, of yeah, yeah. species in that are already in jars and collections that just no one's got the, uh, or but people haven't realised or they haven't got the time to describe them and stuff like that. But um, yeah, like your book, I mean, it's a beautiful book. Um, it's really cool if anyone's uh, looking for a field guide to the snakes of Australia. And it's awesome that every single species is actually within these pages um but i'm interested in how you go about creating something like this because from the outside it looks like a monumental amount of work and obviously there's two of you working on it but did you have a process between the two of you as to who was doing what how did you organize that effort so for me this is my the snake book was my fifth book uh so i've i've sort of almost an old hand at it in some ways uh you, you sort of get a bit of a strategy going and you keep moving on but when I did my first two books, which happened to be on uh, keeping animals in captivity, with one was on a lapids and the other one was on uh, frogs, I basically sat down with a, another author and the first thing that they said to me was to sit down and write the, the contents and then write your subheadings and then write your paragraphs within those subheadings. And if you can get your subject lines, then you're basically you're, you're infilling your information. And then the same thing goes with, when you're doing a species account, the, the the key to it is getting a structure there. And then once you've got that structure, it's, it's quite easy to infill um, each each spot. And that way you've also got good flow through the text. Um, the difficulty that you have is is trying not to be so repetitive. Um, yeah. However, you mm. you want consistency where you want people to be able to to skim through skim read through a, a species account to to capture the, to get to the, it might be the, the scale morphometrics or they want to get to the ecology or the habitat preference of the species. You want them to be able to see where it's going to be, but you don't want it to look like it was the direct species before. So they're, they're reading exactly the same thing. So um, that can be a bit of a challenge. Um, the other thing, a bit like when you're writing a paper or a an article or a note, um, making sure that you write down your references as you go. Uh, so you don't overlook any of the references and the material you cite. Um, the other thing that I always try to do is make sure I get a non, uh, non-herp non person to to peer review the text. And the whole idea of that is to make it more readable to the, the market that I was aiming for in this case. So in this case, this book isn't a book for herpetologists. Um, well, I think herpetologists will get something out of it. Uh, it's designed for... Uh, Farmer Joe and the scout and guide groups and the the general naturalists out there. And so I had to be careful to make sure that where I had to use uh, proper language and nomenclature, that that uh, was defined within the glossary. So uh, tried to minimise using using big words, for lack of a better term, um, and simplify the text. Mm. Yeah, right on. Yeah, well, that's cool. I like, um, I like. there's a few times in this where you refer to like the carpet pythons. It's like, well, how thick's a carpet python? Can be thicker than a man's arm. And I was like, yeah, that's a nice touch. That's the kind of thing 
I love reading stuff like that in a uh, in a field guide. So you've mentioned that um, you're working on another book, and that one's about lizards. Yes, yes. So Ty and I we uh, just recently had our our tenth wedding anniversary, and we're still together after doing a book. So we're doing another hey, one. Congratulations! Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so Ty's um, uh, Ty's been working tirelessly on that and, and I've been working on it as well. Um, and so we've the way we've broken it up this time is that she's taken on some some family groups um, and she's writing those and, and then I'm writing other ones and, and we're, we're getting through it. The, the constraints of this publication, the way this publication works, is we can only have a maximum maximum number of species, which unfortunately in the case of lizards we're only going to be able to get capture about um, a third or so of the uh, the amount of Australian lizard species, um, but then it, again, it is a basic book. It's not for the um, for the herpetologist. So we'll be picking out the the nice spectacular ones and the ones that people are more commonly encountering. Encountering, whereas with the snake book and the frog book, we've captured every species and subspecies. Right on, yeah, and I suppose. Um... In many cases, could you potentially just have like a representative species of the genus that looks kind of like what what a typical member of that genus would look like and have that represent <clears throat> some of its kind of congenus? Yeah, so that's essentially what we've done. So with the Larissas, we've picked out, I mean, there's 96 species of Larissa, I think, off the top of my head. Um, wow. And, and, about, and about 99 species of Tinnitus. Um, so Tinnitus is probably, a, and Larissa are probably, uh, probably should be busted up at some point in time. They're probably sort of dump dump ground genera, a bit like um, uh, sorry, Elife was at one point in time in Trimasurus. So um, th- there is a few changes that will eventually happen. But what we've done is we've picked out sort of spectacular examples, but also examples that, that represent species groups within a genus, um, and then also chosen things like. Um, you know, we, I think we cover all of the monitor species and we cover blue tongue lizards and anything that people would generally keep in captivity we've captured. Um, and then we've also picked out some some newly described stuff and some really spectacular-looking critters as well. So um, so that's for a release in 2021 at this stage. Wow, okay. So that's, con- suppose- that's fast, fast turnaround. Yeah, I suppose actually focusing in on fewer species relaxes that pressure to keep up with a big rapid changes too so you can all right people were less likely to probably see these new ones that have only been spotted in one little location i suppose that relaxes that pressure a little bit so you can dig down on some better known ones and give a little bit more detail i suppose yeah i, yeah. I think so the the issue that you've got is things like say gahira or something like that that have got um i mean gahira pilbara has been split into about eight species i think from memory um and most of those are split genetically and then there's some morphological characters, whether it be the 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 condition or the count of the subdigital MLA, or whether it's the conditions of the uh, Gula scales and and some of the, uh, the labial scale structures and where creases come in and whether a supralabial is in, intersected by a nasal, etc. And so uh, with that, it, it, for for most people, that's going to be very difficult to ascertain what yeah. the differences are there. So uh, from our point of view, we're picking one of those Gohira um, and then we'll we'll sort of cover that and that will sort of cover off a few taxa and explain that this is part of a, 
a a group of close, closely related species. Hmm. So. Yeah, you can definitely see the divide between like really naturalists and sort of like ultra keen herpetologists with what you've just been talking about. Like the vast majority of people aren't going to be too fussed. You know, if they've ID'd something to within a kind of generics or just a species group, they're going to be satisfied, aren't they? And most people aren't going to be wrestling the lizard to the floor and checking out its chin flaps. Oh, for sure. I mean, look, <laughs> even with the snakes, and like, I, I've, I gave a talk recently on um, at, a, at a herpetological society about the book, and I got told um, don't include so many blind snakes uh, in the <laughs> talk. And and like for me, I find them absolutely fascinating. They're a, they're an incredible animal, but it's very very diverse. Um, and there's a, a hell of a lot we don't know about them. There's a lot of species that I only know from, from yeah. one, uh, less than a handful of specimens. Um, you know, you've got soil structure, you've got um, a, a whole whole heap of different different things that, that act on these animals, which cause them not to move around a hell of a lot. And so they're speciated quite rapidly in some places. And yet the morphology is extremely conservative. And so you it is very difficult to tell them apart. A lot of them are quite small, less than uh, 30 centimetres long total length. And some of them got a ventral counts in excess of, in, in the case of Longissimus, over 700 uh, ventral scales. Um, so to have 700 ventral scales or, or top dorsal row, row scales, as it is in, in blind snakes, um, in a snake that's 400 millimetres long, uh, you're sitting there <laughs> with a microscope trying to tease out, um, tease out which one's which. Um, and it sort of drives you nuts when somebody comes in, you're counting through a museum specimen and someone comes in and going, oh, we're going to lunch. And you're like, oh, shit, was I at 600 or was I at 599? <laughs> right, okay, back to the start and, and off you go again. Um, so to say it was character building, That's uh, that, was, that was a bit of fun. But, look, I enjoyed that. The, the blind snakes for me as well was something that there was a lot of published morphometrics on uh, the Western Australian and some of the Central Australian blind snakes, but there was a number of the fairly common Eastern Australian stuff that didn't have scale counts on it. I couldn't find it in any books, and so uh, I ended up speaking to some colleagues at a couple of the museums organising some some lab time and going in and, and counting a whole heap of blind snake scales. Um, fun for me. A lot of people didn't think it was a hell of a lot of fun, though. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, so it, it, I suppose it's... it's it, part and parcel with doing a book like that that you've got to go through and do some things well i think it's important to to cover the species that people think people don't care about right because you're never going to get people to care about blind snakes if they're never going to know anything about blind snakes or you know if they were missed out of a book that was people would perceive as being comprehensive people will think they don't exist so i think it's i think it's absolutely critical that you put the effort in and did those counts and did the did the legwork I mean, yeah, they deserve it, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. More power to blind yeah. snakes. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I like there's snakes. there's not a lot of people get excited by blind snakes. And and if you've ever caught blind, not yet. If you've ever caught blind snakes, the that they shoot out a, a an incredible smell um, that is incredibly hard to wash off. Uh, so it's not the easiest thing to deal with. <laughs> um, they do not pose for photographs easily as well. They are absolute nightmares when it comes to taking photos of. Um, and because they are very cryptic in nature, a lot of people sort of don't get excited by them. Um, mm. But 
My, my wife thinks it's hilarious that I'm excited by blind snakes and teases me incessantly about it. Good, good on her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only uh, the only sort of blind snake esque thing I've seen is a uh, Peter's thread snake, and I was like completely taken with it. It was a beautiful little creature. I thought it was a worm initially, and it was on the path, so I picked it up to move it, and I was like, "Hang about, this is a snake." Um, but yeah, incredible creatures. I have to say, it didn't musk on me. Um, so I was lucky in that regard. Whether or not thread snakes do musk as well, that's uh, Leptotyphlops, that one. I, I don't know too much about the ones outside of Australia. So, um, But certainly just about all of the species that I've dealt with in Australia have uh, certainly musked me uh, uh, from time to time. Um, you know, they, because they eat ants and, and ant larvae, um, they're, they're interesting in that they... You know, you think of how many different sort of shapes and sizes of ants are out there. Um, that's why there's so many different sorts of blind snakes. They seem to be specialists in a lot of in a lot of cases. Seem to be relatively specialised as to what they eat. Um, so they're not just generalists. They'll, they'll eat any ants that are out there, but they tend to eat fairly specific types. It seems um, there are generalists out there as well that seem to be able to feed on just about anything. I.e. the the uh, Indotiflops braminus, the, the bramini blind snake that you know mm. I found in Samoa and as well as in um, in Darwin and also in Brisbane as well. They're a pretty incredible animal, um, and it's the only blind snake I've ever had regurgitate when I picked it up. So that was a bit different. What did it regurgitate? Weird. Uh, termite. Uh, wow. Termite eggs. So um, yeah, that was that was an interesting thing when I was in Samoa. So. Yeah. I think the UK is one of the only places that doesn't have that snake. <laughs> oh, oh! I'm sure it's there somewhere, yeah. hiding in someone's flower pot. Yeah, there must be some. In their vegetable garden. Kew Gardens has probably got some in the warm room. People just think they're... Yeah, exactly. They just think they're worms or something. Yeah. Wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, so, Scott, mm. something else I was curious to ask you about is, um, do you do call-outs for people who find snakes in their houses? Yes. Yes, yeah. I do. But I try not to. I'm really good at talking myself out of business. Oh, um, really? <laughs> well, okay, so... The whole leave it alone, it will take care of itself sort of oh, yes, tactic? Yes and no. So, the, obviously, we've got dangerously venomous snake. I'm in southeast Queensland. Um, we have dangerously venomous species fairly commonly encountered, such as eastern brown snakes, Chidonea textilis, red-bellied black snakes, Chidecus porphyriacus, um, and then we have things like rough scale snakes and, and Stevens banner snakes and a few other things that are much less commonly encountered but are dangerously venomous. Um, so what do I try to do when I, a person rings me up to, to remove a snake is I ask them to send through a photo. And from that photo, usually I can identify what, what the taxon is, provided it hasn't been taken with a potato. Um, and then from that, from that, I can then work out whether it's worthwhile me having to go out there. Uh, if it's a, a harmless species like a common tree snake, uh, Dendrolaphus punctulata, um, or a carpet python, Relia spilota, I'll try and do my best to convince the person to leave it in their yard. Um, reason being is that we know that from other translocation studies in reptiles that as soon as you move a reptile out of its home range, they, they seem to really struggle. And so until such time that studies are completed in Australia, on this, I'm sort of erring on the side of caution from the other published data and trying to, to minimise any translocation. So 
it, it also, you know, we charge for the for the activity as well. So we're actually saving the client money by not turning up. Um, generally speaking, if it's a tree snake, they'll have a look at it. They'll see it in their backyard. They'll freak out about it. You tell them to shut the door and walk away from it, and then two hours later, they'll obviously the tree snake again, sort of deal. Um, if it's trapped inside a house, it's a little bit different. Um, if it's a venomous species, again, a little bit different. And then, uh, but you, you know, you get to see some some interesting things. That's for sure. Uh, snakes yeah, in unusual locations. Do you find that it's more often than not it's a harmless snake, or is it quite frequently a venomous snake that people find in their houses? It's about. Uh, I'd, I'd have to go through and check the exact percentages, but it's, it's probably about 20% is a dangerously venomous snake um, that I I would go to. Um, most of the time it is things like tree snakes and, and carpet pythons that the person is, is really struggling with um, having to, a snake on their property or in their house, so they're, they're absolutely freaking out about it and so... Um, there, there is a reason then to to move the animal off because the, the person can't can't be in their house. Some people have got a a pretty incredible phobia of reptiles. Not that yeah. we really understand that. So. Yeah, yeah, no. Like I think even in my limited experience, I've actually only responded to like three snake calls in my life because it doesn't really happen that much in the UK. And uh, yeah, I just, I just don't think it happens. But um, one of them was this elderly couple, and it was for Escalapian snakes. And they were really chill about the Escalapian snakes when they were in their garden and they were used to seeing them all the time. But then one day they had a skylight through into their attic and the lady saw two snakes either combating or mating in the attic. And she just lost her mind. She just freaked out so hard. The difference between them being inside and outside was just too much for her to take. And so that was when she phoned phoned us and we had to come and try and find them. I mean, we didn't find the snakes because... The attic was just pure insulation. There was no way that we were going to find it. It's a massive house with just, you know, like meters and meters and meters of insulation. So we didn't find the snake, but I just thought that was interesting. Something about things being inside your home freaks people out. I think the one that the, the thing that does sort of worry me a little bit at times is when you get those photos of, of things to ID and, you know, it's a, a juvenile eastern brown snake that they've put into a sock or something like that and you're like, can't believe you got it in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, and they, <laughs> how did that happen? And you sort of say, so how did you, what have you done? You know, did that touch you? Did that snake bite you or anything? Oh, no, no, I didn't let it get anywhere near me. And you sit there and go, how the hell did you get it into a sock? Um, and they've got no idea that they've picked up a, a baby eastern brown snake. And, you know, baby eastern brown snakes quite often in Brisbane are banded with little black bands all across their body. And they're about the thickness of a, a typical biro borrow pen so they're, they're not a large snake by any means of the imagination and yet there's recorded deaths from Chitonea that size in people in under 30 minutes um so it's a very very serious bite if you if you do happen to get bitten and they're fairly highly strung lapids as well they're not the most friendly things out there um so i've had quite a number of those sorts of phone calls um i also get a number of phone calls from very concerned parents with um, young children that have gone out and, and found a snake down by the creek or something like that and brought it home um, and then ex- had to explain to them, A, that you can't do that in Australia. It's illegal to actually catch snakes without a permit. Um, but also, too, that snake happens to be dangerously venomous and so uh, I don't think you're going to release it. Uh, I will come out and I will basically explain to the child what they're doing is is uh, 
not good for their health and then go and release the animal. So um, I've had a couple of those as well. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty intense. So, but it's all character building. I mean, I, I caught snakes when I was a kid as well and I grew up in Victoria where the only snakes that I were catching were things like brown snakes and tiger snakes and copperheads and, you know, I'm still here. So, you know, it's snakes. snakes are very forgiving. Yeah. All I had to catch when I was a kid was frogs. <laughs> we used to just catch loads of common frogs in the garden, which is kind of how I got my start. But um, Perfectly safe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you. frogs are unbelievably harmless, aren't they? I mean, they're probably one of the most harmless animals going. Unless you lick them. Unless you lick them, yeah. That's very, that is a good point. Yeah, toads, yeah. yeah. Even in UK. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, Shooter Franny. Um, they're... The the Australian toadlet Schiedophrynia, they're, they're not actually related to toads at all. They're a myobotrachid. Um, but they have alkaloid toxins very similar to what's in mantellas or dendrobatids. But the interesting thing about them is they actually manufacture the alkaloid toxins as opposed to getting them from their prey. So that's a, that's a little interesting note about Australian frogs. Cool. Cool. They're not sequestering there. Producing. They like do. That. They do sequester, but they also have. They also manufacture alkaloid toxins as well. Uh, okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> just in oh, case. Yeah. Just in case they can't find any any. Ants. Yeah. Sure. The frog's got it all. Mm. All right. Cool. Well, um, what do you reckon, guys? Should we get on to talking about these uh, hoplocephalus? Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. All right. Wicked. Well, um, I'll introduce the paper. So it's by. Shelton, Goldingay and Phillips, 2018, Population Ecology of a Cryptic Arboreal Snake, Hoplocephalus. And now, Scott, you can probably correct me on this, but is it Bitoquatus? Yeah, so Hoplocephalus, Bitoquatus. So the, the no. kef, it, it's the kef, it's actually Cephalus as opposed to Cephalus. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And this is published in Australian Journal of Zoology. So yeah, we're talking about the pale-headed snake. Um... Which has got the the scientific name you've just described there, Scott. It's quite cool. It actually does mean something. So it's got a bit of um, ancient Greek hoplo, which means tool, weapon, piece of armor, and kephalus, uh, which means related to the head. So armored head is the uh, generic epithet there, and then uh, the species epithet means double collared. So quite a descriptive name, which we're always big fans of. Huge fans. And uh, yeah, so to describe the snake, it's kind of a, um, a sort of mostly plain slaty grey, but you can see black in between where the scales meet. And true to its name, it's got a pale head with sort of some dark markings on it, which, you know, with a bit of imagination, you could call two collars, I'd say. I've only seen pictures, obviously. Um, but uh, you've actually seen the snake in the wild, have you not, Scott? Yeah, I've seen these in... Uh, about seven or eight different localities. Uh, so one happens to be the, the study site that these guys did their study. So, um, so yeah, but they're a beautiful snake. Um, the You tend to find them more so on trees than on the ground, um, but you do get them crossing roads and stuff like that as well. Um, they are, they've got a bright pink mouth on them that they're more than happy to show off if you upset them. Um, wow. So, so they're one of the, the, the genus Hoplocephalus are, are unusual in Australian snakes that they will actually gape uh, as, a, as a warning to, uh, to, to people. And they're fairly pugnacious little snakes. 
Um, so, you know, it's if you upset them, they're more than happy to, to buy. It's cool to hear that they have that bright pink warning message. I've not seen that anywhere. I've not seen a photo of that or anything. That's, that's yeah, didn't had no idea about that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's 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 quite bright against the pale mouth. It, it um that that sort of pink mouth is quite quite flashy. But I'll um I'll send through a couple of photos of them gaping, and we'll be able to put that up on the the herp highlights Facebook page or whatever, and then people can see what I'm talking yeah. about. I'm trying to think of another lapid that does that, and all I can think of is is vipers for eastern browns. Oh, eastern browns. Okay, so the, the, east, there east. are other examples. It's certainly. Like thinking of thinking of uh, Asian species, and I'm I'm drawing a complete blank. I had to look. King, Co- King Cobras will open their mouth and charge as well. On occasion, if you upset them enough. Yeah, I I think I've seen seen that once, and that was like really agitated King. I don't think I've ever, like. Yeah, no, I'm, I I guess I'm just picturing like cottonmouth behaviour, and not pairing it with with charging or another defensive behaviour. Are these guys having their mouths open and doing something else as opposed to sitting there with their mouths open? Usually the only time I've seen it is after they've struck at at the me, I suppose, multiple times beforehand, and then they'll they'll leave their mouth open sort of um, in readiness for another n- another strike. Okay. Um, Ichiopsis, uh, the, the bardics will also do it as well, which are uh, in that sort of... Uh, that same clade that these things are sort of sit along. Um, so there is a number of, of taxa in Australia that will do it. Um, they all tend to be fairly pugnacious and they almost invariably have all been striking before they've done it as well. So oh, right, okay. That's that's that makes a lot more sense now when you when you're saying King Cobras for the like additional context, because it they need a little bit more encouragement, I suppose, <laughs> although that might not be the right word, to open their mouths and to actually, to actually show it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So um, this snake is distributed in, well, between Sydney and New South, New South Wales and Cairns in far north Queensland. So it's got a pretty wide range, but from my understanding, it's quite patchily distributed. So, Scott, when you were kind of setting out to try and find these snakes, what kind of habitat were you looking for? So they tend to live in open woodland, brigalow and scrublands. Brigalow is a is a fairly open woodland type that is characterised by large iron bark trees, along with uh, a fairly uh, sparse understory. It's fairly warm, fairly fairly hot and dry, and characterised with a, a summer rainfall period as well. So you've got relatively heavy storms in in summer that come through, but it, it is a semi arid. And landscape, so it's an interesting habitat because it's basically that it's on the most mostly it's on the western edge of the Great Dividing Range in Australia, and so you don't have the the heavy rainfall that you have in in the eastern part of Australia uh, falling onto it. So it's not it's a little bit more arid, and so what you tend to have is you tend to have a mix of both the eastern species and the more central central species sort of running into the Brigalow, uh, as well as having its own own taxons as well within the Brigalow belt itself. Um, the the population, even though it, they do occur from, it's actually west. They're not actually in Cairns itself. They they're up on the tablelands out towards Mariba. Um, they they are a disjunct population. They don't seem to go all the way down. There's a North Queensland population, that, and then there's a a southern population which runs through to. Um, 
uh, down towards Sydney, uh, but they're not actually in Sydney itself either. They're sort of the nearest they get to Sydney is a place called Orimba, as far as I understand, uh, which is about halfway between Sydney and Newcastle. And um, they're like you say, they're well, they're thought to be quite arboreal, and they've actually got this um, sharp keeled edge along either side of the belly, which is present in lots of arboreal snakes and helps them grip when they're climbing and even climb pretty smooth bark. And from reading about them, they seem to spend a lot of their time in log hollows as well, presumably, you know, resting up and digesting or avoiding predators or whatever that might be. And um, yeah, egg layers and females probably don't reproduce every year, which was kind no, of... No, not egg... Sorry, they're not egg layers. They're live bearers. Oh, oh God. I'm glad you were here to say that. <laughs> okay, so... Definitely, definitely live bearers. Okay. What? I wonder where I got that. Um... And that presumably goes for the whole genus then? Uh, yeah, the whole genus is, is they're all live bearers and they can have have some pretty incredible size litters as well. Um, the the published stuff where the the stuff that they've talked spoke about within this paper, there's actually some a couple of records early on that had uh, some really high high litter sizes. Uh, generally it's about two to seven or two to eight, um, but they can actually have upwards the, the highest record that I found was seventeen. 17 young so um which is a, a pretty unusual animal that's for sure Drop that many yeah that's crazy yeah and um yeah for this study they went into the red gum forests uh near dalby which is in the western darling downs of southern queensland um so we're in eastern australia and they're frog eaters they eat it seems like they're mostly frog eaters, but they'll also eat lizards. And I found one record that they actually even ate a bat. Um, but there's some question about how much of their frog diet is terrestrial or arboreal. Um, it certainly sounds like they're, you know, pretty predominantly in the trees. Um, do you think these are kind of an active foraging snake or would they be ambushing for frogs? The the dietary, the, the frogs that they're talking about that, that these things eat uh, in the genus Limnodonastes are, are frogs that are fairly commonly found on the ground. Um, the red gum, these river red gum habitats have got often either got a fairly large water source nearby and the, the limited nasties live in the soil cracks around those water sources. Uh, and so they they can be in, in massive numbers as well. So the, the snake wouldn't have far to go once it descended from a tree. It wouldn't have to go too far to find a frog or get onto a scent trail to, to follow down a frog. Um, Quite often when you see these things is that uh, they'll, they'll sit underneath bark on trees during the day and they'll actually follow the sun around the tree underneath the bark. And so they'll they'll cryptically bask um, underneath the surface. Um, so that's a, that's one note that I, I did some Vorna spotting a while back and which is where they, they go through and they're clearing patches of bush. Uh, with permits, apparently that makes it all okay. Uh, so they they clear all these bush, this bush, and you go through beforehand, and you you flag up trees that you think might have uh, animals in them. And when you go to when they fall those trees that potentially have got animals in them, invariably the pale headed snakes tend to be on the sides of where the 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 sun uh, the sun is on uh, during the day. At night, uh, they'll come out from the the soil cracks and the the bark cracks and the cracks within the trees themselves initially, and then come out and they'll tend to sit there for a, a short amount of time. Sometimes they will be sitting in what appears to be an ambush position, and 
I would thought I would think that if a uh, Gohira gecko or a small robust velvet gecko ran past, uh, I don't think they would have any problem in eating those either. So um, I, I found it a little bit unusual to see how many frogs that they eat. The information provided in the paper. It's fascinating about them traveling around the trees with the sun. Um, so when you're doing those um, forest clearance things, like what happens to all the animals that fall out of the trees? Uh, so you capture the animals, you record them, and then you move them off to the side. Uh, generally, they're clearing fairly small bush blocks that it's not too wide, uh, but it might be for a, like a, a gas pipeline or something like that that goes for, um, you know, 150 kilometres or something like that. So it'll only be a, a patch that's that's 50 metres wide or so because you've got the the, the pipe work itself and then you've got a, a fire break either side. So you tend to have vegetation either side of that. And so you'll take the animals directly across 50 metres from where they were um, disturbed and, and then released back into the wild almost straight away. Right on. I'm with you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, well, it's a horrible job. I don't do it anymore. I, I can't. don't have the stomach for it. Uh, fair, yeah. It sounds very similar to what environmental consultants do in, in uh, the UK where they kind of go and take stock of everything that's in an area, put forward a sort of uh, report about what's going to be destroyed and then implement some flaky mitigation measures that the company uh, pay for and then, yeah, it gets destroyed. Yeah, I think the other problem, I mean, for me, this is one of the other reasons why I stopped doing it, was that it it is almost like the, there's a saying, you can put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. Um, mm. the, the, the issue is, is that, yeah, you, you translocate an animal off to the side. You you are ruining though, the habitat that that animal was in in the first place. Um, the companies often put in environmental offsets and things like that where they're replanting trees to, to offset the, the trees that they're falling. The problem is is they tend to plant monocultures. The, uh, the trees that they're falling often have um, hollows and, and leaf structure and things like that that um, you, you will not bring that straight back that that can take you know in some cases 100 years to to bring that um that that proper ecology back to that environment and so uh a politician or or somebody that that isn't trained in any form of environmental science looks at that and goes well we pulled out five thousand trees we'll put five thousand trees back what's your problem um yeah and so rather than uh sitting there and, and, and being part of that. Um, I've chosen to take myself away from it. So, but yeah, I'm, I can't do that anymore. It's too too rough on myself. Yeah, mm. totally understand that. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm environmental consultants. I know a lot of them. And, um, yeah, I know a lot of people are in it for the right reasons and, you know, they want the best. But um, I think, yeah, just from speaking to some of them, I think the outcomes are sometimes a little bit difficult to swallow. Unfortunately, it's not the environment. Certainly, I'm not bagging any environmental consultants here. It's it's not the the it's not the environmental consultants that are, that are causing the issues for the most part. It's the the big business that's paying everybody's salaries out there, um, and so as a result, you know that the environmental consultants do the very best they can uh, with what they've got, and unfortunately, it just in some cases it's not enough. Mm, yeah. On back onto the. Uh... <laughs> Pale-headed snakes. After a little bit of bleakness, 
Ron's whose habitat is still <laughs> remaining. Uh, the idea of this study was basically a mark recapture study, and they were trying to work out how long these snakes take to grow, um, how likely they are to survive year to year, and how many inhabit an average hectare of this red gum forest. And they did this by conducting surveys along transects at night, and they're looking in the trees to find snakes using headlamps, which is a really fun way of finding snakes. And yeah, they managed to catch 194, well, they managed to catch 113 snakes uh, in 194 captures. So they had a fair amount of recaptures and snakes they caught. That's over over six years. Over six years. (laughs) Very importantly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can empathize with these numbers. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's hard. Um, And yeah, the, they got a bunch of information uh, for the males. Uh, they were sort of between 320 and 514 millimeters SVL, which is, you know, kind of a modest sized snake. And females were bigger, 260 to 660 for females. Does that kind of line up with the size of snakes you've caught out there, Scott? Yeah, the sizes, the sizes sort of make sense. The, the, I suppose the only thing in that demographics that sort of jumped out at me a little bit was the, the sexing, uh, how they... They had 113 individuals, 20 males, 38 females, but then they had 55 where the sex wasn't determined. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that. They are a very very sexually dimorphic uh, snake. When you look at the tail shape on these, it's it's very, very clear when you've got a male, even with juveniles, it's, it's very clear. So um, it would be interesting to see how they determine the sex. They, they don't make too much comment about whether they used whether they probed the snakes or anything like that when they yeah, were... Yeah, they don't say at all, do they? In fact, the capture stuff is very loose. The details of how they do the measurements and things, that's something I picked up. I didn't get whether it was... Uh, did the measurements why they were under, uh, like uh, anaesthetised or still live and wriggling, which is a little bit odd. I would expect that in a paper to be... Oh, yeah, that's... especially with a snake where, you know, there's multiple ways to get a good measurement of a snake. But there's also right. really a lot of ways to get a bad measurement of a snake. Well, I mean, they are a dangerously venomous snake. And so there, there is some safety precautions there. But I mean, anyone that's working with dangerously venomous snakes knows how to work with them. I would have I would have thought they would have been putting them in, in tubes, um, at least to determine the tail length and the sex and then maybe... Uh, doing a head hold and then holding them up against a piece of string, or I mean, they're only a fairly small snake, so you probably could stretch them out to just straight along a, a ruler. Um, that said, though, you do get some inference when you when you stretch them out, so uh, um, you wouldn't want to be separating any any parts along the body as you did it. Um, but they also put a pit tag into uh, each first capture of each snake was uniquely identified by implanting a pit tag. Uh, under the ventral scale, 20, 20 scales anterior to the cloaca. Um, so, I mean, if they're going to do that, I'm sure they had enough time to, to put a probe into the snake and, right. and determine the sex. Yeah. I mean, that's that's, that's the safe, the most sensible assumption, right? That it was all done during the uh, the anesthetization. Yeah. Well, it seemed to be only only topical anesthetization, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's only a to- it's only a topical anesthetization. Oh, yeah. So the, so so the snake itself wasn't actually anesthetized. It was just a, a painkiller on the um on the on the ventral and they brought it just split in between the two ventral scales and just shoved it into the body hmm. cavity there. Which shouldn't take very long, 
Um, no. But that said, I mean, someone who is relatively competent probing snakes to probe a snake with with good accuracy, you, you're talking a, a 15, 20 second process, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless, they did catch some snakes. And one thing they estimated, which I thought was quite interesting, was their um, annual survival of snakes. And what they found was that sub-adults had lower survival year to year than uh, the adults did, with 0.23, so a 23% chance for sub-adults to survive from one year to the next, and 81% for adults, which suggests that once these snakes reach maturity, they're relatively safe. Um, and they, generally speaking, get to exist from year to year, which they say puts them in this um, bracket of um, K, K selection. So they have this kind of high input, lots of energy into few offspring, most of which survive to um, adult maturity, which is kind of an interesting thing for snakes, uh, something which you don't really read information on for a lot of snakes, certainly not survival. And it's something I'm very mm. curious about for the species which I study. Well, it's always tricky because you're you're dealing with this recapture rate of juveniles or subadults, which uh, tend to be the most cryptic, tend to be the most arboreal, tend to be the hardest to find, and with the lowest survival. There's a lot of things working against you. To uh, what do they call it in turtles? The lost years or whatever. Yeah, the lost years. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, man. Really tough. We're we're desperate for that sort of information here too. It's. I mean, it's compounded by the fact that you, even pit tags for for some of these snake species are, you know, borderline. You don't really want to be doing much to these these younger younger individuals from an ethical standpoint. So yeah, apparently there's going to be tricky. a new range of micro like micro micro pit tags coming out pretty soon. I heard through the grapevine, but hopefully that will happen because that would be awesome. Ooh, yeah. When you you've got your your glowy gel too, which uh, I think is quite a nice. Mean, meanwhile solution yeah that's actually um that's been accepted for publication as well so we can talk about that at some point sweet soon. yeah fluorescent gels an option which lots of people are familiar with the um visible implant elastomer stuff people put it in frogs and things like that so that is a good alternative but then you've still got to recapture the snake as you say which yeah which is a task yeah it's tough the, the babies themselves are, are quite small when they're born total length you're talking about 25 centimeters total and about 6.8 grams in weight. I don't think they give the weight of the pit tag there, but they, I mean, it's 11 millimetres by 2.2, so that's quite a decent size, particularly for a, a small snake. Um, yeah. I know that there has been issues uh, putting pit tags into juvenile broad-headed snakes um, with causing, uh, certainly in, in captive animals, that, that has caused them to die. Uh, through through mm. infections and stuff like that, and they've had trouble have trouble passing um, uh, passing stools post post uh, pit tag placement. Right. Yeah. The trouble is with the pit tags. The the pit tags themselves are quite small, but the applicators, like the metal on them, is pretty dense. So even if you've got a small pit tag, the applicator is like this horrible thing. Um, yeah, significantly larger than the actual pit tag itself. So you've you've always got to take that into account as well. They actually managed to estimate the density of these snakes as well, which was 13 pale-headed snakes per hectare, which, uh, I mean, that sounds like a nice volume of snakes in a hectare, I think. I I guess. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> like I, I'm, I'm so, I'm still so blind on what is a good snake density, what is a healthy snake density yeah, for, I know. <laughs> uh, for populations, because it feels like we get a something that that manages to get down and get us a density for a snake species. You only get maybe one or two studies per species, and certainly the stuff I've read about places, uh, Southeast Asia and stuff, there tends to be aspects of the study that sort of make well yeah you got a density there but you there's so many uncertainties and unknowns and all it takes is well like we talked about a couple of episodes ago this sort of capture probability or whatever you start changing that number and your whole estimate starts either getting way more uncertain way bigger way smaller you know it's, it's very sensitive to or can be very sensitive to things that are extremely hard to measure especially for snakes so it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe 12 is good. Maybe 13 is good. Certainly, they're suggesting it's it's pretty decent, right? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that, I mean, that the particular site that they're at is a, a place that's very well known for a good population of broadheaders, uh, of pale-headed snakes. Uh, and so so that's, suppose, point one. Um, point number two is that the, the, the snake density there, there's a whole heap of other snakes that are going to be overlapping and competing against pale-headed snakes for, for similar food mm. sources. Uh, and so I suppose as a result as well, that the, the snake as an overall term, the, the snake density is much higher than, than 13 snakes per hectare. Um, but I suppose it depends on where you're looking and where you're, where you're searching as well. Um, they do sh- suggest that there is a difference between the amount of uh, animals that they find, found on the ground where they found more adults on the ground versus more juveniles in the trees and subadults in the trees. And so if you spent more time of your your searching time, your active searching time, looking down towards the ground, which as as humans, you know, we're, most of us are less than, less than, say, six foot six in height, we're going to be searching up to about 15 feet generally and down to the ground. So we're going to have a a predisposition to be searching terrestrially. If these small snakes are going up to the crowns of some of these these red gums, which can be upwards of 25 metres high, um, you, you're not going to see a, a, a seven gram snake sitting in the top of a tree. Sure. No, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose that's partially reflected in their range of, uh, they give an estimate for total population and there is a big big range was it something like 700 uh 700 snakes to what was that 2400 or something so there is a lot of uncertainty captured in their models at the very least so yes definitely yeah yeah but it's it's one of one of the issues with studying snakes you're just always gonna have to deal with they're damn hard to find yeah i like this paper though overall i think um it's just good to see some sort of hearty information about um what i perceive to be quite an understudied snake and certainly um i wasn't familiar with this genus of snakes uh, up until quite recently so yeah are they actually protected over there scott does that is there like legal yeah so all of all snakes in australia are, are, are legally protected all reptiles are legally legally protected so you can't go and capture um, or or work with touch photograph play with any any wild snakes without appropriate permits so um it's it's actually illegal to kill snakes in australia as well unless the the animal is actually presenting a, a threat to a person so it, it 
there there is big fines if you if you're caught playing with something that you shouldn't be touching without the, the appropriate permit. So they are they are well and truly protected, um, and it can make it difficult when you when you're doing initial studies on things to to, to get those permits in order because sometimes they can be a little bit mm. difficult to to obtain. Um, that said, the the one thing that I did notice about this paper is that it is it is only about pale-headed snakes at this one location. It would be they do touch on uh, being unsuccessful in, in checking uh, survey efforts outside of red gum forests. Um, they certainly do occur outside of red gum forests. I found them in a number of locations outside of red gum forests. Um, however. They are easier to find in red gum forests, so maybe that has something to do with it. It'd be interesting to see if they had, if someone put in similar survey efforts into some other habitats where these snakes are present, whether they had uh, similar results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that was almost a deliberate decision because of you start hitting this this lower bound of not being able to detect snakes, and then you start being it's almost impossible to to get decent density estimates. So it feels like uh, picking something that's actually doable to to get an idea of uh, a population somewhere that you know you can actually do it, and I mean I think one of the one of the aspects I really like um, is this is a solid baseline study for an area that what did they say it's been uh, cane toads arrived twenty sixteen or something yeah so they've got this nice baseline data before this pretty dramatic uh change in change in ecosystem and it is so so valuable to have these studies done before these things happen as opposed to try and back work you know the impact of whatever has occurred afterwards is i because then you just uh, do this again in you know a few years time or right now and uh you've potentially got some some options there to to see the impacts of cane toads and other environmental changes that might have occurred okay it's still a single site but it's something certainly that i mean i, I this this particular site is one of the locations that i've, I've frequented a, a number of times um since toad arrival and, and i haven't seen a noticeable decline in um hoplocephalus i have seen a, a it seems to be a decline in a couple of the other other frog feeding animals out there but um at the moment, certainly pale heads mm. are in similar numbers to what they were um, during this study period. Well, that's heartening to hear anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Completely anecdotal and happy to be there on good nights as well. You know, it's about 300 kilometres from my house, so it's not um, it's not somewhere I go just if it's if the, uh, if the weather isn't going to be right or anything like that. I'll tend to only go there if I'm, I'm going somewhere further west, so... Aye. Gotcha. Yeah, well, um, hopefully those chubby little toads won't cause too much chaos. Um, but yeah, I guess it remains to be seen. Speaking of sort of chubby comical animals, we've got a, a chubby comical brand new species that's been described this year to talk about. Fantastic segue. <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> I, I did love my best. it. Absolutely love it. Planning that one for weeks. <laughs> so uh, this is a paper by... Eskandarzadeh et al. I'm going to say et al. Lots of names I don't want to butcher. Um, this is a new species of Eryx from Iran.
and this was published in Zoo Taxa very recently this year, which is very exciting. Um, yeah, Samboas, as I've said, they're chubby. They're hilarious little snakes, really. Um, they're Boids, as the name suggests. And yeah, they have these little heads with upturned eyes and blunt tails that resemble their heads. And yeah, there's been a brand new species found in Iran. Um, so prior to this, there were 13 species in the genus Eryx. So this will be number 14. And the first snake was found way back in 2006 in eastern Iran. And subsequently, they found a couple more along the southern coast where the country meets the Gulf of Oman. And yeah, they based this description off the original specimen caught in 2006 and an additional paratype. And yeah, it's just an exciting new species. And we like the name, don't we, guys? Gotta love a non-patronym name. <laughs> Do you feel the same as us about that, Scott? Well... Yes and no. It depends. I, I do like patronyms at, at times, um, but, but sometimes it gets a little bit... I like the name to mean something, you know what I mean? Like, it's... And, and I, I this... I mean, the, the name in this case pertains to the, the area that uh, that these guys are found um, after that, that Sistan region. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's a it's a nice thing. I, I do I do like a patronym when it's, when it's deserved, shall we say. Fair, yeah. So you're against patronyms with the odd very special exception. Yeah, that'll do. That'll <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not <laughs> against patronyms if someone wants to name something after after me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a special exception. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's an exception. I, I don't think either of you guys would have an issue with it either, to be frank. Well, that's probably No, I, I would. I would stand by my guns. Would I'm, you? I, no, yeah. No, I, I... Nope, nope, nope. Yeah. See, there's already loads of things called something major because it just means big. So I've kind of like, yeah, yeah, I could probably, uh, I could probably slip under the radar. But no, I think in theory, I probably wouldn't be up for it. But yeah, if someone actually contacted me, it would be a hard thing to say no to. But as you've, um, as you've alluded to there, Scott, this is Eric's Cistanensis, which is named after the Sistan region in Sistan and Balakistan province, which is where the very first individual was collected. So a very fitting name. And um, yeah, should we talk about what this snake looks like? It's pretty cool. It, it looks like a sausage. It does. It's, it's almost no change in width the entire length, including head and tail. It's remarkably homogenous. <laughs> so. Maybe it's a bit of an unusual thing with the sausages and the shape of the sausages that you get in the UK. Might be a bit different to the sausages you get in Australia, but if I had a sausage <laughs> like that, I'd be questioning my butcher. Um, no, in all seriousness, it, it's a very robust snake, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, robust is a kind of way of putting it. Yeah. I, I, I'm a robust kind of a person, so, you know, that's that's, a, that's I'd rather say robust rather than say fat. <laughs> they are though like the ones that they've caught particularly uh figure a and b uh no sorry figure six i mean these are, are wild snakes and they look extremely well fed like whatever they're doing they're doing it well that first one is like seriously chunky and yeah they're sort of they're very similar to the indian samboa which uh, according to the paper they're actually most closely related to although they are surprisingly genetically distinct based on the two genes they've looked at but um yeah they're What's kind the, of uh... What's what's the name of the Indian sandbow? Sorry, uh, Johnny I, Eric's Johnny. I. Okay. 
And uh, yeah, they're kind of, well, I guess you could say sort of a sandy brown base colour with very faint black saddles. Um, and that's really it. They're quite a sort of simple coloration. I'm imagining these guys are spending a lot of their time buried in the sediment. Which sort of makes it unusual why they would need such that bright coloration. There's a juvenile uh, of the sister taxon in the in the paper as well. It's really incredible in in its color uh, in Figure Two. Oh yeah, yeah, they're bright orange, aren't they, Johnny? Yeah, bright orange compared to this thing. That's sort of that yellowish sort of color. So I wonder if that's related to to the soil color that um, that these things are, things are living in. Oh, that would be a that would be a neat little study wouldn't it trying to get a get a nice quantification of color on the snakes and soil there's some lovely lovely soil widespread soil uh what's the word oh dear what's the large scale geospatial data stuff called what's what's the correct term for that remote sensing (laughs) there you go remote sensing if you could you got all that wonderful soil data get some pictures of these snakes across their range Correct for the white balance and stuff. Cross correlate. That'd be really ne- that <laughs> probably more difficult than I'm making it seem, but that would be really neat. And then, but then they they go fainter sort of as they get older, which is kind of I don't know. Whenever I see orange and black on a snake, I just think aposematism like off the bat. But I'm ready to be wrong. So, which type of apos? What's what's aposematism for? What though? I'm presuming they're non-venomous. Just, yeah, no, I mean, just like general black and orange is frightening to lots of predators. There's lots of other things coloured that way, um, which are... Yeah, so just borrowing it from other species, yeah, essentially. sort of tagging yeah. with the coral snakes and co. But who knows? But is it? But but there's no species that... that there's no species of venomous snake that I can think of that, that have that colour pattern in that range. Um, How far uh, east do they go? They're not going to hit, hit thing, you know, larger banded crates and stuff. Nope. Although nope. I know that's yellow, but... Oh, they're only in they're only in Iran, so they're they're not. Outside oh yeah, of yeah. Iran. No, sorry, I'm still talking about the uh, Johnny Eye on this one. I don't think. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, sorry. Complete. Sorry, completely, completely thrown. Yeah. Thrown everyone for a loop. There. Yeah. No. No, I'm with you, Scott. I I wouldn't have thought this was to me the um the new species Cystinensis. That looks like camouflage, or at least, yeah, blending in with some some base color. Maybe there's a, you know, they're, they're quite grub-like in appearance. Maybe there's a, a toxic bug out there or a grub that's that's uh, that would be uh, distasteful to some predators, and that might be the might be the catalyst there. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to a a, a herp, a herp asematism. Yeah, that's not a bad shout. One way you can tell these two species apart: the Indian samboa Eryx johnii and this new one that we're talking about. Um, Eric's cystinensis is actually the bluntness of their tail so the end of this new species is not as blunt as uh, the Indian Sambo and the thickness of the tail is actually less than the head so if you find one of these and the thickness is less the thickness of the tail is less than the head you can be sure you've caught one of these Eric's cystinensis and um, what did they give as a common name for this species? Did they? Did they? I don't think they did did they? I don't see a common name in the etymology. No, doesn't it? Like which is usually where it goes. Yeah, it, it'd be it'd be nice if they did standardise that a little bit and 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 gave. I do like it where they give a a recommended common name. Yes, I agree. Yeah, because there, there is a lot of places that that do need common names. So I couldn't see a, a recommended common name between the two taxons. 
No. I suppose it would end up being something like Sistan Boa or Sistan... Sandboa, yeah. Sandboa, yeah, yeah. Especially with the species epithet being what it is. That yeah. would make a lot of sense. It's actually good when you get... Quite often, usually I would say, you get a suggested common name in both the language the paper's in, which is usually English, and local mm. language, which is great because then, you know, you know how to communicate with people about this specific animal as well because yeah i can't imagine that's easy if something's been newly described and you're trying to talk to someone local about it it's not going to get it's just going to add to the confusion really isn't it certainly in some places i know over here in australia where you might have species that aren't well known or haven't been known to science the oh and belly pythons are a classic case for that they were known to the indigenous people for, for thousands of years before um they were they were described in 1977, mm. so they were known as narwhals. So even though we could have, we we gave them the name the old pelly python, you could you could give a recommended name and, a, and an indigenous person would look at you funny if unless you showed them a photo of what the animal was because they know it as something else. So it may be difficult in that sense, but in in some cases as well, if you if you discuss your description with um, the local people beforehand, they may actually be able to give you. A name that they're already calling that animal already. That yeah, yeah I mean, that's the way to go. People should yeah. absolutely do that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think this is a really interesting snake. I was really excited when I saw a new samba pop up in my uh, in my news feed. It's always cool to see a new chubby snake that's head looks like its tail. Well, it's a rare treat, isn't it? Usually, it's uh, vipers and mysterious sort of keelbacked colubrids. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the habitat looks exactly what I would expect. It just looks sandy with kind of bits of grass here and there. That actually looks like a farmer's field, actually. It is. It's, it is agriculture. Yeah. They're found in agriculture, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, that's kind of interesting, too. They're obviously at least some somewhat tolerant of uh, a little bit of disturbance. Yes, which is a good sign for conservation going forward, too, as if they're resistant to that sort of stuff and can be living presumably safely side by side with humans. That's at least a... A good sign, although, what, one was found on the road? Dead on the road? Yeah. The, the paratype was a, a roadkill. Yeah, so, I mean, not, not living completely uh, completely safely. They actually, uh, figure five and figure six, as I understand it, were also animals that they uh, were sent in photos from, from locals, and then they've identified these as the new taxon, so... Uh, my understanding was that they didn't actually examine some of these specimens. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's why they 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 got a a paratype there that's been been uh, a bit smushed. Yeah, it's not ideal, is it? It's pretty sad, really. <laughs> yeah, smushed is the technical term for it. No? <laughs> it actually says that on the bottle. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is the smushed one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, right on. Well, that's it. That's our um, that's our species of the bi week, and I think uh, yeah, that pretty much concludes our episode on uh, what is it? Hoplocephalus. I'm pronouncing that right. Hoplocephalus. Hoplocephalus. Yeah. Okay, so hoplocephalus. Okay. Hoplocephalus. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you very much for joining us. It was really, really interesting mm. to get your perspectives Cheers. on these snakes, and yeah, talk to you about your your book and stuff like that, and. Um, yeah, I wish you all the best of luck with this lizard tome that it sounds like you're producing. <laughs> well, thank you very much, guys. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm working on it with my wife. So, 
Um, she she just doesn't particularly like getting on podcasts and stuff like that, so I do the speaking for both of us. Um, <laughs> we tried to get her. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you Maybe you can work on Ty. Yeah, she can come on when you bring the lizard one out. Yeah, I reckon that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> the other, the other thing too that we've got to organise, guys, is we've got to get that that crossover episode happening between wildlife cake and cocktails and and her pilots. Yeah, that we've been talking about that for a while. Yeah, Hi. we were going to do the uh, new Tremerosaurus species uh, that's named after Harry Potter, but uh, we saw you covered it on there, so we thought we'd change that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, wasn't there oh. another Tremerosaurus that was named this week as well? Oh, not that. I'm Probably. sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I thought exactly. Flip a the same coin. Thing. Is there a new Tremerosaurus? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I think there was a. It was another split off that came out this week as well. I was like. I'm sure we do. I, 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 and you know, you talk about names that I hate. I hate. I hate that idea. That's a. That's about the worst patronym that you could get. I reckon. But <laughs> I suppose the. Yeah. I suppose the other side of it, though, and we discussed it briefly, was that the one thing about it is that it's one almost a surefire way to get notoriety about that publication. So oh, it's going to get yeah. picked up by the 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 larger media, I suppose, about that. And then that's going to give exposure to your lab and potentially funding mm-hmm. and stuff like that that would help you um, do further research into into taxa that aren't quite as sexy as, as Trimisurus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, I live in a house with two science teachers and both of them separately came up to me and were just like, yo, have you seen this new snake? It's named after Harry Potter character. I'm going to tell the kids about it. So I think it's probably pretty cool in that regard as well. Um you know, this is a yeah, scientific <laughs> discovery that's being shared with children. Go on, Ben. Yeah, I just I want to see the follow through. I want to. I, I love the idea that you know it, it's generated more interest and things like that. I am extremely wary of that being that being sort of pushed as hey, look, uh, attention equals you know either more money for it or more conservation and stuff. Um, cause I, I really worry that that's missed. Um, and that, that, that the connection is completely disassociated. Um, and will maybe be encouraged to have these, these species names that are sort of less practical and more attention grabbing without the benefits that come with it. Like I'm, I don't know. I want to see, I want to see the, <laughs> the start, the end and the actual conservation results because we always we always bang on about everybody knows king cobras everybody loves king cobras yep okay (laughs) what next yeah so it's it's hard to get those two things connected certainly popularity and actual money essentially you know results whatever that is Mm -hmm. at at some point in time i mean you you brought up king cobras i mean they're 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 invariably going to get carved up at some point in time um and Mm -hmm. and you and yep and it's 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 not exactly a secret that it's going to happen, um, yep. but at the same time, it's been coming and coming and coming for so long as well. I, I wonder how many people will still see king cobras as Ophiophagus hannah, hannah, and and whenever these other names that that come into fruition are used, they're not going to, they're still going to refer to them all as king cobras going forward, regardless of what yeah what species name they they are given. Um, and it's really yeah, a lot of momentum be, there. Yeah, it's really only going to be hurt people that are going to go. Oh, yeah. Well, it's this. The other side of it is that there's also 
there's been pushes elsewhere in, in multiple institutions where they've auctioned off naming rights to taxons as well. You know, oh. you can, and and people the have, golden palace monkey. Well, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know that one, right? Yeah, yeah I, I have. Yes, yes, yes. And and this is my point. You know, you, if if the funding is going to go into a conservation purpose, great. But at the same time, um, you know, there's 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 plenty of other names that are out there as well. Yeah, I I just always get I always get nervous when when money gets tied to, uh, I suppose decisions I would like to see as scientific. When really, I suppose they're they're not actually that that scientific. It's a name at the end of the day. But I don't know. I've just got a, I've just got a natural reaction <laughs> against that sort of stuff. I cringed when I heard Salazar put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tremerosaurus Salazar. Well, I mean, we've just contributed more to its uh, sort of notoriety. <laughs> <here>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's. Well, I suppose that's something do? to say, isn't it? You know, I, I spoke about the other species of Trimisurus that, that seem to have come out this week, and I can't remember what their name is for the life of me, and yet yeah. Salazar is, is ingrained into my brain right now. So yeah, um, that's, a, that's a bit of a worry, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Trimisurus Salazar or Trimisurus, no one cares. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not hard to choose. Yeah, no, that's fine. They'll they'll get resynonymized in a couple of years' time. Don't worry about it. Well, I mean, that's that's another thing. That's a great paper at some point in time to be touching on that. What's going on with the Vipera, with that that uh, that new paper that's come out on that? Yeah, I need to read yes. that. It looks really interesting. Yeah. Did you want to do some corrections? Yeah, go on then. Okay, yeah, we'll do some corrections. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other correction I had was that the the comment was made about Kitrid not being sure whether there's been extinctions. Oh, yeah, I said that, which I wasn't sure about. 100%. Um, Tordactylus is it's implicated in both species of Rhea batrachis, the gastric breeding frogs here in Australia, oh. as well as three species of Tordactylus, Tordactylus circularostris, uh, Dionus, and Rheophilus, as well as a number of the, the New England tableland tree frogs as well. Unfortunately, you know, Kittred hit Australia in the 70s and absolutely decimated a number of our taxons over here so those are all australian species yeah 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 we've lost um uh, six species to kitrid here in australia Damn. so one one tree frog yeah one tree frog latoria niacolensis uh three species of tordactylus which are the tinker frogs awesome frogs um fantastic critters i i did a bit of work on them on the two of the the three remaining species and then the both species of gastric brooding frog as well died from them brutal yeah yeah anyway well such as life yeah thanks for that though that's good to know because i when i said it i was like hmm i felt like i felt like that should have been but i just didn't know them so that's good to hear i reckon there was I, I, you'd need to check um but i reckon there's been a couple of species of adelopus um I would have thought you'd know yeah. this, Ben. You're a Todd, Todd, a bloody toad guru. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a couple of um, Adelotus species that have dropped dead and gone from, from Kitrid as well. That said, though, there is one thing to be said for that. Um, we thought we lost Latoria lorica over here, which is a, one of the species mm. of tree frog, uh, and it was subsequently discovered 20 years later uh, in a slightly drier habitat. Um, obviously, Kittred struggles with um, temperatures over 30 degrees. Uh, this happens to be a slightly drier habitat that these lorica were living in, and so they, they survived. But we lost a whole heap of stuff that sits in the top of the rainforest in the tropics. 
um, that doesn't get hot enough to, to kill the chytrid. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, fun and games. But thank you for the yeah. correction. That's uh, that's good to know. And now I'll know every time anyone asks me. <laughs> Sweet. Well, Scott. Yeah, that was. Yeah, it was great to hear about your um, experiences in the field, and it's mad that you've actually been to this field site. So. Thank you very much. Um, we'll have to get you on again sometime in the future for sure. Hundred percent, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. And um, you know, I'll, I'll do a, I'll do a gratuitous plug as well. If anyone wants to buy the book, uh, they can go to our website www.wildlifedemonstrations.com. Um, invariably, though, it's expensive to send it from Australia, so you might find it mm. cheaper overseas. Um, but if you want a signed copy, we're happy to sign it. The volume in that sense and, and send them out to <laughs> yeah i'd urge everyone to get a copy it's a great little book it really is uh so you can get in touch with us on facebook um find us on there or twitter we're at herp highlights or you can contact us herp highlights at gmail.com and that's it thank you very much for listening <laughs>